On this episode, we are going to talk about COVID-19 lockdowns and suicide. Before we start talking through the topic, a little disclaimer. On this episode, we will be talking about the rates and some causes of suicide. We'll be avoiding talking about the methods of suicide, but know that talking about suicide and the feelings associated with it can be triggering for some people. If this is you, or you become unsettled while listening, we recommend skipping this episode and getting some support where you can. We'll put a list of options in the show notes. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. I'm Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Amy Donaldson. And this is Two Shrinks Pod, a podcast all about psychology. We're recording this episode at the end of October 2021. And in the past month, Melbourne and Sydney, Australia's two largest cities, have emerged from lockdown. Melbourne's come out of a 77-day lockdown, and several weeks ago, Sydney came out of a 108-day lockdown. Melbourne earned the dubious title of the most lockdown city in the world this month. 263 days in the past year we were locked down for, which... Was a long time, Amy. It was. <laughs> Australia has been an outlier internationally in terms of the control of COVID or the spread of COVID nineteen. We largely avoided the spread of COVID in twenty twenty due to a strong public health response while waiting for a vaccine. Unfortunately, but not unexpectedly, <laughs> this effort was completely squandered by our conservative federal government, which failed to quickly or effectively procure vaccines and roll them out in twenty twenty one. And then, of course, the inevitable happened. The Delta strain spread from a single quarantine breach in New South Wales, which belatedly plunged Sydney into lockdown, and then Melbourne. It also spread to New Zealand as well. Mm -hmm. The restrictions fortunately have eased after these long protracted lockdowns, as the adult population of both states has reached 70% double vaccinated. And, Amy, if I can be parochial, (laughs) it's worth noting that Victoria reached this milestone faster than New South Wales, despite the priority at vaccine access given to our northern neighbours. It's clear that lockdowns have an impact on mental health. Lockdowns suck. It's just as equally clear that lockdowns have been politicised, especially the mental health consequences. And this is why we wanted to do this episode. With any decision, there's risk versus reward. We accept risk every day in our lives. We drive a car, cross a street, drink alcohol. Public health decisions are no different. In 2020 and 2021, public health officials and politicians had to weigh up the physical and mental costs in reducing social contact with the benefits of stopping the spread of COVID-19. The population had to choose to go along with these lockdown orders and the mental health of many of us has suffered in return. When something bad happens, we fear the worst and the worst outcome of poor mental health is suicide. A common concern when someone's struggling for psychologists and the general public alike is what if they kill themselves? We see people having a difficult time emotionally and our thoughts go to worst case scenario. What if? So what happens when an entire city is locked down and people start emotionally struggling? Wholesale worry about mental health in lockdown quite easily translated to a concern that lockdowns would result in increased suicides. The mental health sector was certainly worried this could be true that the cost of keeping people safe from COVID was the increased risk of people dying by their own hand. 
To their credit, the government and organisations recognised the population was struggling and increased financial and practical support to people, including improved access to mental health services. However, these concerns were made early on and in the absence of available evidence. Later on, claims were made on social and mainstream media that lockdowns caused suicides and therefore lockdowns were bad and should end. Curiously, these points were made by groups who had never shown an interest nope. in mental health. <laughs> they just so happened to be anti-lockdown, right-wing and worried about the economy. Yeah, I know. It's, curious. It's, oh, curious, isn't it? So, now that lockdowns have ended, what does the data tell us? What we wanted to do in this pod is to examine the evidence around suicides in lockdown and provide an overview of the evidence so far. The causes of suicide are extremely complicated. And despite decades of research and good knowledge about risk factors at like a, a population level, we're still not very good at predicting someone's, uh, an individual's behaviour. So we thought we'd expand the discussion beyond the stats to understanding the causes of suicide and also some tips or some thoughts around what to do if someone else or you is feeling suicidal. Mm-hmm. You might have noticed as I was talking that I said an increase in suicides. It's near impossible to understand what factors lead a person to kill themselves and why someone else does not. Even if you could ask the deceased, why did you do it? Their answer would likely not take into account all the factors. So, before Amy and I start, we want to be clear about what we aren't saying. We aren't saying that lockdowns have not, in some cases, contributed to someone completing suicide. We're looking at the overall rates. Because this can answer an important question about the human cost of lockdowns and also open a useful and hopefully interesting discussion about the causes and risks for suicide because these are poorly understood. Mm. For me, if I can disclose, that in 2020 I knew two people who completed suicide. I can't ever remember another year in my life where that has happened. I saw and felt the impact of these deaths. Uh, I don't know what led these two lovely people to take that action. And in many respects, it doesn't matter. It's the memory of my two friends that does. But as professionals, Amy and I want to have a level-headed, data-driven, respectful discussion about the impact of lockdowns because whilst they have had an impact on everyone's mental health, they've saved thousands from illness and death. So the structure of the pod is to run through the stats. So that's answering the question, what have the suicide rates been during COVID and were they higher than previous years? Then we're going to talk about why it matters, which aspect of mental health is talked about and what factors contribute to suicide. And then we're going to finish with some thoughts about how you can help yourself or others if they're contemplating suicide. So we're going to throw to Amy and she's going to tell us about the Australian and New Zealand stats. What do they say? Essentially, around the world, particularly in Western countries, the suicide rate's been increasing over the last about decade or so. Okay. This pattern appears in Australia and in New Zealand as well, which I'm going to talk about both. We also see the same pattern gender-wise. So for the most part, more males than females complete suicide. Same patterns found in Australia. Prior to the pandemic, the rate in Australia was 12.9 deaths per 100,000 people. Okay. And that was 2019. So far, we haven't got all of the data for Australia. We only have... Uh, three states were so we've got victoria new south wales and queensland Mm -hmm. for 2020 but we can kind of extrapolate out from that especially because the lockdowns occurred in those states far more than the others Mm. 
In Victoria, where lockdowns were the longest and most severe, there were 713 suicides, according to our coroner's court statistics, in 2020. In the previous year, there were 720 deaths. Okay, so, so around the same. Around the same. I mean, if you're being pedantic, a decrease. Decrease, yeah. The proportion of regional versus metropolitan deaths remained the same. Okay. So I mentioned this because the lockdowns occurred in metropolitan regions. Not in regional. Yeah, so we kept it in the cities, yeah. basically. So the, the cities locked down, but the regional areas were open. Yeah, so they remained consistent with the previous years. So if lockdowns had increased suicides, then we would see a disproportionate increase within metropolitan yeah. numbers. Yeah, and not and we, and we in did, regional. And we didn't see that? No, Okay. same proportions. In Queensland and New South Wales, the data was also consistent with the previous five years. And the rates of suicide in Victoria and New South Wales remain the lowest in the country. There's two exceptions to these rates. For young people aged 18 to 24 and for the Indigenous population. In both groups, the rates of suicide has continued to increase, consistent with the previous nine years. Okay. There hasn't been any statistical analysis done yet to determine whether the rate is more than what it has been previously. Mm. But a quick glance at the graphs looks like it's a pretty steady increase in both groups so basically we're saying that it's been increasing and it looks like it's probably in line with that trend exactly what we mean. yeah, yeah. Okay. in new zealand they calculate their suicide rates by financial year which <laughs> i don't I know found, why that's funny <laughs> no me neither i just it took me a bit to kind of go what that? yeah so from july the first to june the 30th the mm-hmm. following year yeah And for the 2019 to 2020 period, the suicide rate dropped from 13.93 to 13.01 deaths per 100,000. So no change there either. And Mm -hmm. their lockdowns were even tighter than Victoria's. Yeah, right. Um, So they've recently reduced their level of lockdown and it's tighter than what we have had in Victoria recently. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, going further afield, Mm -hmm. going to the UK and uh, the United States. Um, So, you know, Australia often compares ourselves to the United Kingdom and also to America. So, so in the UK, as in Australia, the suicide rate's been gradually increasing. Mm -hmm. The rate of suicide between April and July 2020, so that was when their lockdown was in effect, the official death registrations show no increase in suicides. Okay. So no change in fact they seem to think the suicide rate was significantly lower than the previous three years and significantly lower than the five-year average so 9.2 deaths per hundred thousand mm-hmm. that's a drop of about 12 percent or 13 percent which is substantial which is a lot right yeah. so and that was a, a drop of uh, male suicide right so the female rate remained the same okay so it's interesting as you start to pull this apart right so like you know, it's not just one rate across the population. Mm. You can have increases and decreases within subgroups and mm. then that could, you know, that affects the overall total, doesn't it? Also, like as a final point there, like in addition, surveillance data shows the rate didn't increase in the two months following restrictions easing. Mm. Right? So there's no change as people got out. Yeah. Right? So it just stayed the same. So in, in America, so we'll just talk, talk about a couple of states. So in Massachusetts, uh, an estimate of the suicide rates in 2020 during the stay-at-home advisory period, such a formal title, the stay-at-home advisory period, mm. um, so that was March to May 2020, they found like it wasn't significantly different from the same time period 
the previous year, mm-hmm. so 2019. In Connecticut, different state, uh, on the whole population level, suicide rate from March to May each year dropped from 11.7 per 100,000 in 2019 to 9.4 per 100,000 in 2020. So this is a 20% lower. So it's 20% lower mm. than the previous year and, and 30% lower than the five-year average, right? So so breaking so, that trend of increase as yeah. well. As so, so what's interesting here is the UK data and the United States data show a decrease in suicides, mm. whereas the Australian data showing a... Uh, plateauing a plateauing or a no change mm. what they did find in connecticut it was that the rates dropped for white citizens but increased for non-white citizens mm-hmm. um these researchers seem to attribute this to not to lockdowns but the disproportionate impact of covid on minority groups um mm-hmm. also they seem to think that it was this period was like when the black lives matter was at its peak mm-hmm. so that was when you know, there was lots of discussion about the appalling treatment of black Americans and lots of discussion. So you can imagine that could bring up trauma. Mm, right? Absolutely. And so, and looking at an overall rate for the United States, so the, the rate of suicide in 2020 was 14.8 in the United States and it was 14.5 per 100,000 in the previous year. Mm. So statistic like that sounds like that's an increase statistically you would say, suggest, well, I don't know, but you would suggest there's not much of a change there, no. right? So like a probably no change mm. is what I would suggest yes. that says. So let's just take all that together. That says that in Australia, in 2020, mm-hmm. no change. Yep. In New Zealand, no change. In states in the UK. Significant reductions. Significant reductions. Mm. Thoughts on that? I think it comes down to the amount of support that was provided to people which we'll go into a little bit more later but I think you know having extra support rules out a whole bunch of factors that would contribute to someone being at risk at suicide things like losing your job not having economic stability not being able to afford food all of those things so I think that's part of why it's stabilized mm-hmm. I think also it's a simplistic way of measuring mental health Mm. we know that this factor has not i've got a rant about that coming up excellent the um i mean the the one comment i probably would make around that is that this is 2020 data Mm. it's not 2021 data i'd be interested to see what that is Mm. but my thoughts around that would be there's nothing in that data that would suggest to me that more expanded lockdowns would suddenly increase suicides, mm. particularly given if you think about in 2020 when the lockdowns were on, we didn't have a vaccine. Yeah, we actually didn't even know whether the lockdowns were going to work. You know, we we thought they would, or if we would end up with a vaccine. Or we kind of yeah, will pretty, there be one? Yeah, I mean, so there was a bit of a. I mean, you could argue it both ways, I guess. Which is like, well, like this is the only thing, so we've got to stick with it. Mm. But there was also like a, is this actually going to work? So yeah, yeah I mean, whereas you think about 2021. You got a lockdown and we got vaccines and we kind of knew like with the contagiousness of of uh, Delta, mm. we knew that once it got into the community, then, well, actually lockdowns probably weren't going to cut it and we needed to have vaccines as well. Mm. And so it really was actually just a race, um, <laughs> as our prime minister seemed to forget. Yes. Um, to, or assert the opposite of. Oh, my God. Yep. So, you know, so I think if you think about contextually like, 
coming back to my point, it's like, would you necessarily expect 2021 data to be different to 2020 data? I don't think so. If there is other data about that down the track that says otherwise, we would definitely do a pod on that. Absolutely. Uh, I'm always happy for someone to contact us if they think they've got a data point around it. But I think looking at this range of four countries Mm. and different data sets, the trend would fairly convincingly suggest that there's no increase in suicides. At least in Western countries. At least in Western countries, yeah. Mm. So let's let's talk about why it matters which part of mental health is discussed. Because I that's a really interesting discussion. Sounds good. Really I, I want to just reflect on why why this is such an important topic mm-hmm. to discuss, right? This is and and we've been planning on doing this pod for a while this episode for a while we wanted to find the right time to do it and and we wanted to kind of get the right vibe to it because amy and i feel extremely strongly it was extraordinarily frustrating to Mm. see claims being made in the media and on social media around uh, lockdowns lockdowns are causing suicides and therefore lockdowns are bad and should end Mm. particularly like I work as a psychologist in a hospital dealing with people who are medically unwell, dying or just medically unwell, Mm. dealing with their family members at times. And I live, have lived for many years, a, a world where I see how bad how bad it can be when health goes bad. Yeah. I think it's probably the easiest way to describe it. And so to see people kind of arguing well, we should stop the lockdowns because, you know, it's causing mental health problems, it's causing suicides, like, but then just completely discounting the, the, the physical and mental health consequences of, yeah. of um, large numbers of people getting COVID, right? I think that's been the bit that's always <sighs> been so missing. frustrating. The idea that losing lots of people or worrying about getting sick or seeing the people around you get mm. sick wouldn't have an impact on your mental health. That yep. doesn't seem to be part of the discussion. Yep. You know, I many thing that gets back to people think they're invincible and yes. stuff like that. But I'll throw and I'll ask you the question: mm. Why does this matter mm. if people are exaggerating? So we've got a few points here, but I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say why it matters. Like one of the things I think it, it, it the main reason that comes to mind is it creates a black and white view of mental health. It's like mental health is serious only if there's someone's killing themselves, right? Like, which is not true, right? It's the 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 proportion of people with mental health problems who complete suicide or even attempt mm. um, are much much lower than the than the large pool of people who experience mental health problems in any given year, mm. right? Which is which is good. Right? Yeah. We don't want people yeah. we don't want people harming themselves. But the the however however you would measure it, the the pain that people go through, it, people can go through extraordinary amounts of pain, mm. mental health pain and suffering and never attempt yeah. suicide. And the problem is that if you create it as a black and white, it goes, well, it's only serious if it's this thing, we should only take take notice of it if it's at this pointy mm. end and it completely dismisses all the suffering and all the pain that people go through and all the decisions that are made at a political socio mm. uh, socioeconomic level around how can we help people how can we not 
you know, who, who's worthy of care and treatment, mm. who's worthy of uh, a decent wage, who's worthy of health care, who's worthy of equal rights before the law, mm. so on and so forth, right? And boils down to this kind of didactic view, right? So, so it, and, it just, and also it just completely trivializes all the work that we do as clinicians, mm. yeah. right? Yeah. Right, so they're like, uh, is someone at risk or are they not? If they if they're not at risk, then okay, we won't treat them. Yeah, like they're good to go. Like yeah. that that's that's not that's not good care. No, right. So I mean, so that so that <laughs> that was my first soapbox. Mm. What was what what comes to mind when I when I say to you, why does it matter if people are exaggerating suicide rates or that you know they're they're making these unfounded claims about it? I think my mind immediately goes to the service level and the funding level largely because a lot of the discussions around it have been around two things they've been around well we shouldn't have lockdowns anymore and Mm. then well we need to put money into making sure that suicide is prevented because of these lockdowns and so what it's done is that there's been lots of attention on building quick access mental health hubs or things where people can get support right now around COVID related stresses And what I worry about is that if COVID itself isn't the cause of why people are distressed, if we don't need to funnel money into suicide-related services, but actually it's broader or it's something else, Mm. then the people who actually need help aren't going to have the services that they need. Mm. It feels like we're building a temporary solution to a long-term problem, Mm. that we're going, well, the only reason why people or the the core reason why people are doing worse this year is because of lockdowns and once we get rid of lockdowns and we do some brief interventions with this group of people then we're all going to be good yeah and what i worry about is that if politicians hear that in particular the ones who get to make the decisions around funding then they can go cool we can sort out the mental health crisis with a bucket of money that's going to do the next six months mm. and then we should be fine yeah we can pull out all of the various sort of you know extra medicare funding and whatever mm. that's not needed anymore well because we're through it yeah because i mean as as people have made time and time again is the hospital systems so just talking about physical health for a second mm. the, the hospital systems run at capacity mm. right the the isn't extra capacity yeah. right and so that's why the problem with covid has been such a big problem is because if you get a surge of patients which is what is exactly happening in this city right now i won't be getting very much christmas and holiday leave mm. we've been told because the hospital is going to be full it's and all hands on deck it's all it is literally all hands on deck and people are being repurposed and redeployed and it's a very scary time within the hospital mm. whilst everyone's enjoying their freedoms mm. And so COVID overwhelms the system with a whole influx of new patients, right? And this is also true for mental health services, Mm. right? So, you know, it's not like these services were doing well before, right? And particularly mental health has been chronically underfunded. Mm. But what you were saying, right, which is the solution to improving the mental health of the population does not lie only in improving mental health services. Mm. It helps. Yeah. Right? But it's not the... But now I'm not going to weigh in politically into uh, everyone should be given a living wage without working mm. kind of discussion. But... Oh, could it, we please? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was quite clear that, yeah. that and, and some of the data I read in preparing for this, 
show, um, said that one of the risk factors for suicide is uh, economic. Mm. Like, so like not having any money, yep. right? And, and actually one of the, the buffers was the governmental kind of payments to people and that buttressed people, you yeah. know, or whatever phrase you want to use. And it so took, like if, if you want to improve the mental health of the, of, of the population, address the root causes for why people mm. are stressed and depressed and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Don't, don't just have really nice waiting rooms for people when they get that way, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. And I think, you know, there'd been a lot of discussion in Australia before COVID. We'd had a Royal Commission into mental health that had started pre-COVID and finished during and, you know, the wait lists for public mental health were huge mm. for all sorts of populations. And I think, you know, a lot of the focus with COVID stuff has been around young people. And there seems to be a sort of thought that funding can go in to that area and fix all of the issues that have come up during COVID. But the wait list to get into a youth mental health service was a couple of years pre-COVID. Mm. So why would it be magically fixed mm. with a sort of band-aid that's mm. yeah and, and if you think about training a psychologist mm. it's like what minimum six years to university yeah right if you do it straight through yes right and don't have any life issues along the way or any kinds of like holidays or anything right exactly and even then you come out as a junior clinician mm. right yeah. so you can't in 18 months or how long this pandemic has been going on now no you don't magic up our clinicians no right? and, and and we're focusing on psychologists that's not to say that you know social workers have been doing an amazing job um mm. ot's uh psychiatrists of course mm. you know and and general practitioners and and mm. and all of our colleagues in the in the medical system right absolutely and mental health system yeah right? and i think you know nurses whatever you know yeah like, and on a on a just day-to-day, everyday person level, part of the problem as well of the exaggerating rates is that it creates this sense of panic and anxiety mm. in people. I've had a lot more parents go, well, what if they're suicidal? Mm. And that's, you know, their kids are distressed, but that's not the issue that they're coming for. Mm. But there's been sort of a worry about it. And it sort of, I feel like there's some aspect of dramatising things of dramatizing mental health issues if you're just focusing on the pointy end it's, mm, it's kind only of, real if it's yeah exactly yeah it makes it more trivializes it in a mm. way by making it this one thing yeah and and like also like it it, it not only trivializes it tri- and trivializes the work that we do mm. but it's also an extremely inaccurate way of understanding the most serious Mm. or or one of the most serious outcomes of mental health, right, Mm. is suicide, right? So there's this conception that uh, something bad happens and you kill yourself, Mm. right? Yeah. Now, that can happen and that certainly is is not out, like, it's certainly feasible, Mm. but it's not generally the case, right? It is generally much more complicated. There's generally... A, a long history of problems there's generally attempts and things like that before and you know and then there can be other kind of psychiatric diagnoses going on mm. and all sorts of really complicated things that can lead up lead up to it and there's kind of like this pop culture thing of like oh well 
if something bad happens, someone loses their mm. job and they're going to kill themselves. Yeah. And it's not like, it, look, that's possible, right? But it's but. usually much more complicated. And, and this reductionist view of like, well, you know, people are suffering and the, you know, the mm. politician or whoever is like ranting on social media is like, and, and they're, they're going to kill themselves if they don't get out of lockdown. Mm. It's like, oh, like it's, it's just it's really, just, that. it's just, that's just not, that's just not understanding what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Extremely frustrating. So, so extremely frustrating and sorry, I'm, I'm getting worked up, Amy, I'm sorry. So, but I mean, I think. <laughs> we knew this would happen. Well, yeah, that's it. But the, the, but I think that this leads into, like, like why don't we talk now uh, a bit about like what are the factors that cause or that we know are risk factors for suicide however mm-hmm. we do that so yep. you know amy has done well you, you can give some background on your research experience yes so i worked for a few years doing suicide prevention research so i was looking at young people at risk of suicide in a bunch of different contexts including presenting to hospital following attempts mm-hmm. and what what things came up for them and how they were treated. So this is, it's an area that I feel quite comfortable talking about mm-hmm. and that I'm quite familiar with. Yep. And so we're not going to go too much into theory research stuff around why people attempt suicide. But what I would like to do is give a sort of broad overview of what things play into it. Mm-hmm. So as psychologists, we love a good biopsychosocial model of anything which basically means i don't know i was very happy to stop doing essays on the biopsychosocial. we're going back (laughs) essentially what the idea of a model that follows that structure Mm -hmm. is that we're not just you know brains in a jar we're an entire person that lives in a society that is impacted by biologically what's going on for us by our thoughts, our feelings, we're complex. Mm-hmm. And the sociological pressures that exactly. go on to us. Yep. So with suicide, it's exactly it's exactly that. It's yep. not just one cause. There's always multiple factors. And like you said, we can't always know what those factors are for an individual. But in general, there's a bunch of things that tend to contribute. So one group of things is social. So feeling isolated, unsupported, discrimination, abuse, things like that that happen from other people towards us. There's psychological, so believing that there's no way out, having suicidal thoughts, struggling with how we regulate our emotions, being diagnosed with mental illness, those kind of things. Mm. Biologically, there's a bunch of factors like gender. We know that men are more likely than women to complete suicide. Age, we know there are both the young and the elderly are the two groups that are more at risk of suicide. There's neurological factors that can come into play. Things can happen like you may have a biological, like a physical illness or something like that, that impacts the way that you're thinking and feeling about the world. Mm. Also things like reactivity to pain. So some people aren't as responsive to pain and so therefore are able to step through the process of harming themselves more than someone Mm. who is Mm -hmm. yeah and there's some interesting behavioral stuff around it so and you can correct me if you're wrong you Mm. probably know the data better than i do but my understanding was men are more likely to complete suicide women are more likely to attempt exactly right so that which means that women are less they use less lethal lethal means means, right and so therefore it like it doesn't 
get completed, mm. right? So, which is, you know, it's, it's really curious when you start to kind of understand like, okay, this is a really complex set of behavior. The other thought I was just, I just noted down there is the thing about suicidal thoughts is for some people, uh, and frequently for some people who are in distress, they are relieving. Mm. They are comforting, mm. right? Because when you feel like you've got no way out, right, then that's when for some people, knowing that they could end their life. Is, that option feels like a comfort. Yeah, it feels like a comfort. Mm. Um, and obviously, the longer that goes on, the more at risk someone is at, mm. right? And, so, and that means that they're not in a good way. And that's when... Yeah. We want to be intervening. If you're listening to this and that's what's going on for you, then we'd be urging you to seek out some help mm. um, or talking to someone, anyone, I think. Yep. But it's so it's not just we have these thoughts and you, you, as soon as you have that thought, you go and do something. Exactly. Right. And, and there's sort of an er- erroneous belief around asking about suicide. So, mm. so one of the things that researchers like to do when you're assessing for mood or you're assessing for risk and what clinicians always do is ask about have you been having thoughts about killing yourself or mm. ending your life or, or however you want to phrase it and family members who are observing this or parents of a child who's getting a questionnaire with this mm-hmm. like just flip out because yeah. they think that if you mention it that's going to cause someone to start thinking about it and they're going to be at risk. That they're then going to go, hang on, I hadn't thought about that. I'll do that. I'll do that. And it's completely incorrect, right? Yeah. So, but it's what you don't, it's very rare, well, as far as we know, that the first time you have that thought, then you go off and do it, mm. <laughs> right? Like, that's not going to happen. No. Right? That, that's unlikely. Mm. So, it builds up over time. Yeah. So, and I think that that's really, so there's all these factors, but it, it's a build up and then there's like a access component to it, mm. isn't it? We'll, we'll talk yeah. about that in a second. Yeah. So the, the final area is structural stuff. So okay. like we talked about, lack of housing, food, yeah, employment, yeah. those kind of things, being in a war zone, healthcare. And so yeah, part of what we spoke about before is that people all of a sudden were lifted above the poverty line during COVID when they hadn't been before because mm. the government stepped up and did that. So then there's also the flip side is protective factors. So you know, when you speak to someone who's been thinking about suicide, you kind of look for those things that feel like reasons to stay alive. And they might not be reasons that you would think yourself are important. They might be things that you kind of go, oh, why is it that they're really wanting to stick around for that? I can remember speaking to someone who didn't want to stick around for any, you know, people in their lives, Mm -hmm. but they were really worried about what would happen to their dog. Mm -hmm. And that was enough reason. That Mm -hmm. was, that was part of the picture. Mm Um, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, in in my setting, the frequent frequently I hear people say, "Well, you know, I, I don't, I hate living with this health condition, but I would never do anything because I, my family is everything to mm. me." Right? You know, like I don't care about what happens to me anymore. Yeah, but, I but care my about, family. But you know, and and yeah, and so as a clinician, and you know, if you were a friend in that mm. scenario or something, you you look for that stuff. Yeah, right. Like exactly. how how come you haven't? Yeah. Yeah, why it is that it hasn't happened already. That is kind of, yeah. And for some people it can be, you know, a goal that they're working towards. It can be religion. It can be all sorts of things. The other thing that we look for is how much support they have and how much access they have to support and treatment because that's huge as well. Mm. They actually have people that they can talk to and that can sort of buffer it. That makes a huge difference than someone who doesn't have anyone that they can speak to 
or any access to mm. treatment. Yeah, one of the for a long time I was working in oncology, and you you might have someone who has been doing okay, cut themselves off from a, a difficult family situation, and then they get unwell, mm. they can't work, and then they're suddenly having to rely on a family that you know they have dysfunctional relationships with, yeah. and they're unwell, and you very quickly get to a place where a lot of these boxes are being ticked and yes. you start to get a little bit worried. A little worried, yeah. You know? And so it's very much like, okay, how are we going to support this person? Mm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so like you mentioned, you know, millions of people have suicidal thoughts and a lot of people have will have that thought at some point in their lives. And it might not be something that sticks around. It might just be a, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I didn't wake up tomorrow morning? It might be something like that or it might progress further. We're trying to still understand why it is that some people attempt suicide or complete suicide and others don't. Mm. One model that I quite like is called the interpersonal theory of suicide. And so the idea with this model is that to be able to go through with attempting suicide and completing suicide is that someone needs to have three, three things. They need to feel that they're alone which Mm -hmm. the researchers call a feeling of thwarted belongingness. Your attempt to belong anywhere doesn't work, it's thwarted. The second factor is to feel like you're a burden. So the researchers call this perceived burdensomeness, which is a bit of a mouthful. But the idea that you're a burden to people around you, to systems, whatever it might be, that caring for you is too much. And then the final aspect is that they have the capacity for suicide so this is both that someone has the means to do it and that they're able to do it Mm. physically able to follow that through and so if you take any of these facets away you end up with a different picture so you can feel alone and like you're a burden and that might make you feel like you want to die but that doesn't mean that you're going to act on it because if you don't have the capacity then you're not going to be able to follow through with those thoughts. Mm. You might have those thoughts for a really long time, but not actually act on it. Mm. And, and there's a lot of people, like you get a lot of people who present to ED or or they start an attempt mm. and uh, or they, they make an attempt and then realise during it that, oh, no, hang on, I don't want to do this, mm. right? So that's why means is really, really crucial, mm. right? Because... A lot of people kind of do kind of change their minds. And I read this article about, um, and I'm going to talk about it away here, mm. but um, it's very, very public, but it's like jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, mm. right? So it's, it's, it's a well-known place that people do that. Mm. And they talked about one person, he survived and he said he, you know, he thought his life was all over and terrible and blah 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 and it, and it was like the minute he jumped off he suddenly realized that all these things that he were wrong in his life mm. could be fixed yeah <laughs> um, and 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 could be fixed if he was on the other side of the rail yeah and he survived the fall and he mm. was okay but yeah like you know so just because someone is thinking about it and then acts on it doesn't mean that that is the state of play continually mm. and that's um, the thing that's that's so difficult as a clinician is that 
the intensity of those suicidal thoughts and where someone's risk lies changes so often. Mm. It's not a stable thing. It's not like you reach a certain threshold and then that's it. That's where you remain. It goes up and down depending mm. on what's going on moment to moment. And you get some behavior around suicide and suicide attempts that is actually can mask that. Mm. So people will often go and give gifts to yeah. people. Right, and for some people who have made the decision, so this is like this is a planned attempt versus mm. a unplanned spontaneous attempt, right? And that those two are important distinctions. Mm. You can get people who you know they everyone says, "Oh, well, actually, the last week or two they looked really good." Mm. We thought that he or she was coming out of it, yeah, right. And the reason they're they're feeling good is because they've made a decision, mm. right, and yeah. then they're going to do it. And so you, you have to be very wary as a clinician because what you, if you're worried about somebody and they start looking good, the natural thing is to kind of go, oh, okay, but mm. actually you might need to be more careful. Than yeah, that. exactly. So it's, yeah, it's very difficult to pick up. It is. It's very difficult. And so if you were ever to speak to a clinician about this sort of thing, you, you might be curious about why they ask so many questions about things like, means what you how you thought about doing it or want you to do things that if you're having a few thoughts but you haven't kind of followed it through you might think are a little bit too overprotective Mm. but one of the aspects of this is the idea that if we can take away that capacity for you to hurt yourself then we can keep you around for a bit longer to be able to work on some of those things that might be changeable Um, and so, so much of suicide prevention focuses on those means restrictions, taking away the capacity. Yeah. And that can be like on an individual level, getting someone to, you know, handle your medication. Mm. Or it can be adding railings to high places or gun control. It can be all sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, like on an individual clinician level, I have in the past week talked to someone about making sure that there's no medications in the house mm. available for someone else. I certainly had a patient who I got them to go home and bring in yeah. the a whole lot of medication and give it to me. Right. Which often people kind of go, oh, no, it's fine. I'll just put it away. And as a clinician, you often feel like you're being a little bit pedantic, but mm. it's kind of like, okay, but you could then go and get those things because you know where you put mm. them. And often it can feel, I find that it feels like this sort of following a sequence of things of going, but then what? But then what? Until you kind of reach a point where things feel okay. And when you're a person-centered therapist, right? So that is, you come and see Amy or I, and we ask you, how can we help you? Mm. Right? Versus say, if you go see a GP, GP goes, oh, look, you've got this problem. Here, take this medication. Yeah. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. Right? So that's that's a different approach. And, and, you know, that's what you need to do in medicine, right? Mm. But in psychology, a patient-centered approach is different. It's it's like I'm working with you, but this is a moment where clinicians have to click into a different gear mm. and kind of go, I, I care so much about you, I'm going to try and keep you alive. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry to ask you these questions, but I just need to know this stuff. Mm. As you're talking about this stuff, it makes me think that this is a, a good point to talk about why mm-hmm. we're not seeing this increase. Listening to you and, and listening to that theory kind of crystallized for me a couple of reasons why I thought mm-hmm. or I think which is basically you talked about thwarted belongingness yeah. and perceived burdenness right and there's there's something about 
we were all in it at the same time, mm. right? And so, yes, we were isolated. Yeah, it's been hard. You know what? It's been great. Mm. Last day or two. Yeah. As we came out of the lockdown and I've seen some people I haven't seen for a while. Yeah. Like, and geez, that's been nice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's going to continue to be nice. Mm. Right. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Part of it. But I think there was a sense that we were all in it. Mm. And I, so it like, so I wonder, and also the, the other bit is what is it everyone says as they come out of lockdown? Ah, oh, I'm going to have to deal with all the things I, I haven't needed to keep up with. Yeah. Right. So I think in, you know, I can only speak for Western civilization. Mm. That's where I live. Yeah. Right. But is that it's very easy to feel like you're not on your game. Mm. Not you don't measure up to other people. Yeah. You're missing out. Mm. Right. You can see, you know, you live alone or you're living your life and you can see other people having a better time mm. than you. But when I think when everyone is not having a better time and everyone's objectively struggling yeah then that thwarted belongingness that that goes down you know and yeah. so that would in according to this model if that's if that's mm. what's going on then that would be reducing the risk yeah definitely I, I, the, the other thing i think about though is also means mm. i think there's a lot of people who you know drugs and alcohol are a risk factor yeah they make someone who's on the edge potentially more risk like mm. is more risky right yeah. and so and i think that people not you know, not going out to the pub, you know, particularly, mm. or not being hungover every day, or you know, maybe not gambling as much. Yeah. All those kinds of things. Mm. Um, that come to mind. I mean, what do you? Mm. I think that it also fitting with that kind of everybody struggling picture. Okay. It was more often there's kind of you know campaigns and things like that about you know it's okay to say that you're not okay but actually during the lockdowns because everyone was struggling there was more of a acceptance at least in australian culture of that it was okay to say hey this is shit isn't it Mm. where i think a lot of people perhaps haven't been able to say that before they Mm might have been feeling it but couldn't really say it. And this gave an opening. No one expected anyone to be doing amazingly. Mm-hmm. So it kind of gave a chance for people to talk and to kind of open up a little bit. I think mm. th- that mm. we can't underestimate the those systemic things that we've talked about. Yes, people lost their jobs in Australia, but for the most part, people were then given financial support so that they weren't in crisis. You know, we had all of those services and things all ramp up and and get things going and also fitting with that kind of community thing there was a whole bunch of stuff particularly last year about trying to link in vulnerable communities and vulnerable people into the broader community and i think a lot of people who hadn't made that effort before did like i certainly noticed more communication between the neighbours in my apartment block, people would leave things on one another's doorsteps or like someone would be growing lemons on their balcony mm. and they'd leave it at the front door. Mm. That had never happened before. I've lived there for a long time. Mm. <laughs> there was sort of a sense of we should be doing some nice things for one another because we're all in this. Mm. We need to connect. I think, yeah, like that, that kind of what connections you had that you could maintain, mm. right, we kind of fertilise them. Yeah. You know, like we, we kind of made them grow a bit. Mm. Am I best friends with everyone on, on my street? No. no. But am I more aware of people on my street? Yeah. 
uh, yeah, definitely. Mm. You know, and I think, you know, which, and I live in the inner city, so mm. I'm always the most friendly area. Mm. You know, I think there's been that element to it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But I, th- I think the final piece to it is, you know, there has been improved access to mental health stuff. Mm. You know, and the government, to its credit, did do payments mm-hmm. to people and have increased the length of mental health availability of Medicare funded psychology and also improved access to stuff. I mean, yes, look, there are some, there are a lot of problems with mm. the way that all of that stuff has been implemented that'll be picked over for years. Yes. Right. But I think there was, there was an effort made. Mm. Um, and I think that that was good. Could it have been done better? Yes. Sure. But always could be done better. Mm-hmm. And I think we, <laughs> there was, people were making policy in real time so Mm. you know i'm not going to be a critic in that way Mm. but uh, you know so i think that those things buffered it Mm. a bit but what this does if your client is suicidal right as a psychologist Mm. you are worried yes right if your patient is depressed or you're supervising a a staff member who's got a patient who's depressed Mm. or got a personality disorder or got a whole you know number of other conditions you want to know about risk, mm. right? You know, the, the, the two things I say when I'm training somebody how to be a psychologist, the two things that I want you to do when you first meet somebody is this. Build rapport and do a suicide assessment. Yeah. Right? You know, yes, there's lots of questions you can ask. And, and for non-clinicians, that might seem relatively obvious, but... There is a lot of stuff that you learn how to assess and it's very, it can be very complicated, mm. but you always want to know about risk, right? And so this is something that is... Basically, you want them to feel connected and to know if you need to do some things to make sure that they're still going to be around to come to their next session. Yeah. Yep. Yep, so that you can work on more things. <laughs> you, you want them to like you enough that they're going to come back and yep. you want them to be alive enough to come back, Yeah. right? Yep. And everything else... Everything else is Every, Everything else can follow. Yeah. It's like when you're traveling, right? It's like... Yeah. It's like... Passport. Passport and credit card. Yeah. Right? The rest of it is... The <laughs> rest of it you can, you can make do from there. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I th- you know, this, this stuff is very important. Mm. Well, so, this is something that we worry about and will always worry about. And mm. so, it's really important. And I think this is why we wanted to do this topic... You know, I mean, are a little bit political. We try not to get too political, but you know, it's more about kind of like, guys, if we're going to talk about suicide, let's do it do it properly, mm. right? So let's wrap mm. with a discussion about what to do about suicide if someone's feeling suicidal. Mm-hmm. If you know that someone around you is feeling suicidal, the biggest thing you can do is listen when they try and tell you. I think a lot of people get frightened if someone mentions something like that or kind of in Australian culture in particular we're quite jokey and there's lots of sort of covering up your real feelings with a joke or with a sarcastic comment and I think oftentimes people will start a conversation about them not doing so well by cracking a joke or by saying something offhanded and being there to actually listen is really important I think you don't have to solve the problem for them i think a lot of times people think well it's now my responsibility mm. to keep this person alive and it's certainly something i hear it most of all from teenagers who go well i have to keep these particular friends alive and often as their psychologist i'm going 
well, you're struggling yourself and then you're taking responsibility for other people your own age and actually you're all still teenagers mm. or kids and we need some extra help here. So you can, you can help them by supporting them to get other help. It doesn't have to be all you. Mm. I think also fitting in with what we've talked about, there's kind of two messages that are important, right? That they're not on their own, that you are there and that they're not a burden that them telling you isn't a big problem you're not going to be upset with them that they've told you that they're you know you're not going to think that they're too much you're glad that they've told you because it means then you can help them and it means that you can support them or help link them with someone who can support them Mm. what about so that's so that's the the social connection Mm, exactly the 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 buffering that's what you're talking about is yeah yeah and then that taking that responsibility mm. off yeah yeah it doesn't have to just be you and them against the world mm. the 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 top tip i'm gonna say is if someone is talking to you about this stuff right and they start to say you know look i've 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 i'm not feeling good or i'm feeling hopeless or or they're actually starting to use the words mm. right and you don't know what to say mm-hmm Okay, first of all, that's okay. Yeah. Right? The most powerful thing that you can say to somebody is, hey, wow, um, I don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you need? What do you need me to do Mm. here? Right? So, basically, you own your own emotion Mm -hmm. and also then you can say, do you need me just to listen? Mm. Or what do you need me to do? Yeah. Right? If you're a clinician, you also then have some other things to do, which is about yeah. assessing for risk, yeah. right? And how concerned should I be, mm. right? And and you can actually say that to somebody. How concerned should I be mm. with this stuff, yeah. right? Because y- you want someone to be able to talk to you, talk, talk about it, mm. bridges that social connection. That could relieve, that could actually relieve the pressure. Yeah. And that could actually be the thing that holds them. And so Lifeline, mm. I think, talks about like whatever it takes to get you through the night yeah, to survive, yeah, right? You know, there's no perfect way. Mm. This, is what, this is what we want people to do mm. and we want to be able to assist people with. Yeah. Just, and just on that, it's like it takes a village, mm. right? And so there's that, that social connection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if it's you yourself that are struggling with this i think you know it's really hard to talk to someone it's really hard to bring this sort of thing up in conversation and i think that often people feel like they have to tell the whole story that they have to have some sort of narrative about what's going on they have to have the full picture before they can start talking Mm. or that they have to lead with the i'm feeling suicidal and when we say talk to someone it's not what we mean. We mean that even starting with a tiny little bit is absolutely massive. Even saying to someone, I'm having a shitty day, is a great start to then be able to get some support. It doesn't have to be mm. all or nothing. Mm. So, I mean, to paraphrase you there, basically what you're saying is people would potentially think, if I'm going to talk to somebody, I've got to, these mm. are all the things I've got to do, yeah. and I've got to disclose. All this stuff, for some people, they might be ashamed mm-hmm. that they're thinking about 
about hurting themselves or they're ashamed that they're struggling, yeah. you know, and so on. And so I guess you're sort of saying go easy on your – if you are struggling, mm. yeah. if, if this stuff is bothering you, then go easy on yourself. Like, just start anywhere you can. Mm, exactly. And it's the same with the idea of keeping yourself safe. Okay. I think people often feel like particularly when they – disclose this sort of thing to a psychologist well they're going to stop me doing this and what often we end up doing is coming up with a plan because it's overwhelming the idea of you're going to be safe forever or you're going to not hurt yourself forever often what we do is that thing of like what's going to get you through the next minute what's going to get you through the next hour Mm. it's like a kind of building it up piece by piece rather than going we're going to solve the entire problem now Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I'll be taking a in days and weeks mm-hmm. is probably where I would go with that, which is if I think someone's at risk, are they going to get to the next appointment with me? Yeah. Let's let's problem solve that. Mm. I'm not going to, I can't solve. I mean, I can never solve anyone's problems anyway. No. It's their problems and they have to, you know, I'm, I'm along for the ride, mm. but I am comfortable at trying to work at keeping someone alive for a week. Mm. Right. And if a week's too long, then you make appointments sooner than that. Yeah. And if that's not appropriate, then we find a service that's going to support them mm. sooner than that. And, you know, that's how I kind of break it down. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's worth us going through a couple of things that don't work? Sure. Given that people often worry that how they respond is going to have a big catastrophic mm. impact. Mm-hmm. I think it used to be the way... And I definitely was taught this earlier that you should get people to make like a contract. We ever taught that Mm -hmm. where they agree that they won't hurt themselves. Mm -hmm. That we know doesn't work. It's not something that's kind of done anymore. It doesn't do anything and it often makes people feel guilty or ashamed. Mm -hmm. I feel like they're letting people down. That was like like write it down in session. Yeah, yeah. And agree to me that you won't harm yourself before next week Mm -hmm. or that you won't do it at all or whatever it might be uh the other thing that we know doesn't work is inducing shame or guilt so saying you know you you're not allowed to hurt yourself because your mum wouldn't cope with it or because you won't go to heaven or whatever that might be anything that's kind of like a negative reason why they can't anything Mm. that's kind of designed to make them feel bad it used to be a thought that if you make people feel bad enough about it they won't do it (laughs) but actually these people are struggling so you don't (laughs) want to add to the and the last thing i always say to people is that if someone's told you about it you shouldn't assume that kind of thing of oh well if they've said it then they're not going to do it now because Mm. people who talk about it don't think go on to do it you kind of need to take it seriously if someone's told you then follow it through. Yeah. It's a hundred percent better to look like a fool mm-hmm. and have a client who's alive. Yep. Right. Or a friend or, or a family a friend, member. A friend member, right? Yeah. It's much better to be that. Right? Yeah. To be that person who looks like they've worried too much or that they've yeah. checked too much. Yeah. yeah. Because once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's not a great place for people. And, you know, if you've known someone who has Let's just talk about that, mm. right? It's not your fault. Nope. No, it's not. And I think it's probably as simple as that. Mm. Could you have done something differently? Maybe. 
but you never know. No. Right? And carrying around that guilt and shame is not going to help you and mm-hmm. it's certainly not going to help you prevent another one. No. Right? So I think it's really important to have a go easy on ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to pick up. No. So us as professionals find it difficult to predict this stuff, right? If you know someone, mm-hmm. as I have recently, as I said in the intro, right? But you still never know, no. right? And it's just so difficult and so carrying around that blame. And of course, family family members do mm. and friends do and work colleagues do. And that's that's natural. Yeah, makes sense. Humans, we like to know the answers. We like to know what's what's happened, what's gone wrong, mm. what could have been different. But with this, we often don't know. Nope, never nope. know. And it's shit. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes the person themselves doesn't know. No. Like no. it's, yeah. No. Hmm. Concluding thoughts, Amy? Um, I hope people have found it useful. I think it's important to talk about these things and talk about them in a way that's considered and that I hope that we've given you some directions to go as well if you've got someone in your life or if you're thinking about these things. Mm. Yeah. If, you've, if someone's feeling hopeless, mm. they're potentially at risk. Yeah. And I think just just to draw back to the start of the episode, right? Amy and I were frustrated with the discourse Mm. because it was simplistic. And this last half of the pod hopefully shows you just we have just barely scratched the surface in terms of the complexity. So, And this is why it's really important for people in the media uh, and people online Mm. to be a little bit more considered. Yes. We'll make sure that we put a list of resources in the show notes. I think in general, the main supports that are out there, their crisis lines and things like that, that you can call. But even just going to your GP, if you have a GP and bringing it up with them. In Australia, they're the gatekeepers to psychologists for the most part. And so speaking to them about it, even if, like we said, you just start with something small of like, I think I need to talk to someone. That's enough to get you a referral to a psychologist. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So we just want you to start taking those first baby steps. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you very much for listening to us. Yeah. And if, if, you've, if you've enjoyed the show and uh, you think someone might benefit from listening to this, please let them know about it. Uh, you want to know more about Amy and I, twoshrinkspod.com. You can email us. Uh, two shrinks pod at gmail.com mm. rate and view us wherever you listen to us and we will see you next time yeah it's been a real pleasure hope you guys have got some out of it mm-hmm.